Warning, the following message may be offensive to some audiences. These audiences may include, but are not limited to, professing Christians who never read their Bible, sissies, sodomites, men with man buns, those who approve of men with man buns, man bun enablers, white knights for men with man buns, homemakers who have finished Netflix but don't know how to meal plan, and people who refer to their pets as fur babies. Viewer discretion is advised. People are tired of hearing nothing but doom and despair on the radio. The message of Christianity is that salvation is found in Christ alone, and any who reject Christ, therefore, forfeit any hope of salvation, any hope of heaven. The issue is that humanity is in sin, and the wrath of Almighty God is hanging over our heads. They will hear His words, they will not act upon them, and when the floods of divine judgment, when the fires of wrath come, they will be consumed, and they will perish. God wrapped himself in flesh, condescended, and became a man, died on the cross for sin, was resurrected on the third day, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he sits now to make intercession for us. Jesus is saying there is a group of people who will hear his words, they will act upon them, and when the floods of divine judgment come in that final day, their house will stand. Welcome to Bible Bashed, where we aim to equip the saints for the works of ministry by answering the questions you're not allowed to ask. We're your host, Harrison Kerrig and Pastor Tim Mullet, and today we will continue to answer the age-old question, are some people predestined to be Arminians? So this is obviously a part two. Um, last week we started this conversation uh, trying to answer the question, are some people predestined to be Arminians? So if you haven't listened to that episode, I would recommend First, going back and listening to that, and then coming back and listening to this episode, and I think that'll be uh, really helpful for you because there's a lot of things that we covered in that episode that we're not necessarily going to cover as in-depth um, in this episode. So go back and listen to that one, and then come back and listen to this uh, because we're not going to be covering all of the same material. So uh, like I said, this is the part two, and really I think in this episode, Tim, I think a lot of the questions that I have, they're questions that I had left over from last week that I was thinking about as we were talking, and and uh, I really wanted to ask you a lot more about um, sort of a lot of the the actual beliefs of of Calvinism. I know in the last episode we talked a ton about Arminia, Arminianism, um, and so I wanted to take some time in this episode and and really do it justice and and just ask you a bunch of a bunch of questions about the doctrine of, you know, predestination and, and, um, like how does that, uh, relate to God's justice and, and whatnot. And so I didn't feel like we were really going to have the time to do it last week. So, um, I guess where really where I want to start is, um, you know, basically, uh, Tim, I just want to ask you, you know, Calvinism is this idea that, um, God has predestined, uh, everyone who will believe, he predestined them before the foundation of the world was ever laid to believe, and it is essentially outside of um, that person's control, their salvation is. And, and God chooses these people. He works in their heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and saves them, regenerates them to new life so that when they hear the gospel, they'll be saved. Um, so if that's the case, then, Tim, I just want to start by asking you, is God a big meanie for picking and choosing uh, those he would save and those he would not save? 
Yeah, I mean, when you answer when you or when you ask a question like that, I I guess the um, assumption behind that kind of question is the assumption that grace is somehow owed to the sinner, or that some sort of salvation plan is owed uh, to the sinner in gen in general. Uh, so um, part of the problem with that kind of logic is to say that if grace is owed or if it's merited in a certain way, then it no longer is grace and. Uh, it, it's not true that God even owes the human race a salvation plan to begin with. It, the angels who fell, uh, Hebrew tells us, uh, there was no Redeemer, essentially, who uh, was sent to save fallen angels. So uh, the angels are creatures uh, in a way that is similar to us, like we're, we're creatures, the angels are creatures. And then those who fell, they had no plan of redemption made uh, even possible for them. So the fact that there is some sort of uh, plan of redemption and you know how uh, God interacts with that in terms of how he chooses to show grace and the Bible will tell us over and over again that God will you know mercy whom he will mercy and have compassion on whom he will have compassion and so mercy and compassion are not owed as neither is a salvation plan neither is an you know access to the golf gospel in general so there's plenty of people who have obviously died uh, throughout the history of the world without any kind of offer of the gospel uh, so you just you think about it in those kind of ways that you know individuals are not owed salvation. Um, that's a pretty that's a pretty strange thing to say. Uh, probably for some people, your answer that there that no one is deserving of salvation doesn't it kind of seem like um really most or probably probably all um non believers. Uh, and probably even a surprising amount of Christians would push back and and say, in some sense, like we are actually owed grace. Yeah, I. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously. Um, well, I mean, if the meaning of, meaning of words obtain grace by definition is something that's not owed, so there's no logical reason to suggest that grace is owned. But then I think that would um, push people to. Uh, really, I mean, like the problem, like if you push the problem back, then essentially what people are having a difficult time with, in a certain sense, is the idea that man is justly condemned anyway. So part of it's that. So, I mean, there is very much in people um, this rejection of the basic problem that human beings have. And the basic problem that human beings have is that we we are sinful and uh, deserving of God's wrath. So, in some sense, you know, if, particularly for the unbeliever, this kind of discussion is ultimately, it, it, you know, it may be a discussion about Calvinism or something like that, but really more fundamentally, it's often a discussion about hell and, um, the, you know, the nature of hell and do people deserve hell and uh, and everything else. And so if, if people aren't um, convinced that they are justly condemned, then you can't even really have this kind of discussion uh, but then, you know, at another point, I suppose, uh, you know, as you're trying to think about this kind of discussion, um, you know, there, there's maybe confusion as it relates to the idea of favoritism in general. So, you know, on a human level, if you have certain children and you show one, you know, um, special privileges over and against another, then, then many people would accuse you of a lack of fairness at that point. Uh, but then, you know, fundamentally, the answer to that kind of objection is to remind individuals about the meaning of the term grace and what the word actually means. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't know that anyone, any Christian would knowledgeably say, or anyone that I know, or 
very few people would, you know, in some kind of overt way say that we're owed grace, but basically mm-hmm. it's more, they would push back on more. It's about fairness, that kind of thing. But then fundamentally it is a misunderstanding of how grace actually works. And if you understand how grace actually works, then, you know, you might change that objection. So, so why do so many people just automatically assume that I, I get that it's, it's like a, uh, misnomer to say that you know we're owed grace in any kind of uh legitimate sense because just because of the definition of the word um but but then there are you know like we've been saying there are plenty of people who still functionally are saying that we do deserve this grace that we are owed this grace in some uh way shape or form so why is it that they they think that yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that. Um, I don't know that. I I would hear anyone saying they're owed grace, but then you know it's more about fundamentally what's happening at that point. Like uh-huh. uh, maybe, maybe your circles, maybe people would say that they're owed <laughs> grace, but I mean, it's more about um, like that. That maybe seems like to me like an inference that is mm-hmm. being drawn. Or the logical entailment of a position. So if you have trouble with the idea that God shows grace to certain individuals and doesn't show it to others, then isn't the logical entailment of that that we are owed grace in some way? And I would say, yes, that's the logical entailment of that. I don't know that I know many people who would like be communicating. Articulate it. Yeah, as if we owe, we're owed grace. It may be that right. they realize, hey, that sounds a little bit weird or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, but then I would say, yeah, that is the logical entailment of what we're saying, and maybe we should think through what the meaning of these words actually are and think through historical examples at that point. But then a lot of it is related to this idea that uh, um, it's somehow unfair of God, like if he's going to you know, ha- have a pizza party, so to speak, then everyone needs to be invited or else he's you know, not a very good father <laughs> mm-hmm. as far as that goes but then like uh, like that though is a reflects a misunderstanding of how grace and compassion and mercy work and it and it really downplays the fundamental problem that human beings have that we're sinners and that we're deserving of god's wrath and so any you know attempt that god has to save us is by definition grace and it's unmerited and it's undeserved and so you know, many people comfort themselves with the idea that, well, at least he gives an offer of salvation to everyone, and that seems to be fair. But then, you know, like the, the issue is, it's just like, this isn't a discussion about fairness. If you want fairness, everyone goes to hell. That's the point. Right. Yeah. So uh, if we're talking about mercy, we're talking about a different realm. So, you know, you don't have to show everyone equal mercy in order to be good. Uh, and, you know, you have plenty of parables in the Bible, even of God doing that to where you know the laborer, who, the laborer who comes in at the last hour and gets equal pay with the rest. Mm-hmm. That that isn't fair, you know, by uh, our standards. But then it is fair when you think about you know what the meaning of the word grace actually is and the nature of how grace actually works. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It kind of seems like most people sort of uh, when it comes to this topic, they kind of think of like humanity as a whole, almost like if you could imagine people on a ship that's sinking and everyone's just viewed as like a, a victim of the circumstance. Right. And then, uh, they, when they think of God, you know, God's like this rescuer who comes along 
And he's God. He's infinitely powerful, infinitely wise, infinitely, uh, you know, uh, he's like, I mean, he's outside of time. He created everything just by the word of his mouth. So he should be able to save everyone. No problem. Right. And, and it wouldn't, he wouldn't even break a sweat doing it even. But then uh, based off this doctrine of Calvinism, you know, their view uh, is essentially like saying, all right, so you've got that situation. And then God is saying, eh, I'm not really going to save all you guys. And so then that's where their, you know, their objections come in saying, hey, that's not fair. God would never do that. God's a loving God. Right. But then it seems more like what you're describing is almost like picture the same scenario, but instead of like a cruise ship or something, it's like a ship full of convicts that's, you know, on, all on death row. Right. right. They've, all, they've, all, they've all committed these horrible crimes to, uh, and, and are deserving of death. And then God's coming along and, and, and saving some of them. Which is which is incredible, right? And, well, and if you, honest, you understand and, the actual situation, then right. you know, there's no one that can charge God with fault. Like the issue is more it's about who we are, you know, and right. who we are is undeserving sinners as who we are. Right. Yeah. So. And frankly, it's kind of I mean, if you think about it that way and you just kind of um, you know, put aside some other some other um uh you know, doctrinal truths that we see in scripture, really it's, it's kind of confusing in a way that God would even save some of us. Right. Isn't that right? I mean, yeah, like, I mean, the question that should, yeah. I mean, I think I've heard James White talk about uh, that, like in terms of like the objection in Romans nine, essentially um, like the, the issue, uh, like the thing that should be scandalous is not that God um, like, has vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Like if you understand like who we actually are, the real scandal should be that he saves anyone. Like that's right. the point. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of confusing. Like how can God say that he's a just God if he's saving some people who are deserving of death? Right. 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 Um, so, I mean, like if you imagine our actual situation and you try to personalize it, I mean, if you really understand who we are and how bad or how heinous our sin actually is towards God, I mean, it's just like you know, no one, <laughs> no one wants Ted Bundy saved. Right? right, right. Yeah, no one's crying out for for you know if Hitler were to go to trial, no I mean, one would be pleading his case. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but think about like the Me Too movement at this point, and like you know, there's certain classes of individuals who've committed certain kinds of sin, essentially, and like these individual, like um, like anyone who's accused at any level of abuse in our society is considered the you know the worst kind of sinner ever and without even commenting on you know all that it's just to say that just imagine like that's like we're all like biblically speaking far worse than any of that and mm-hmm. so like the scandal should be that God would save anyone you know and right. i think um like there's plenty of people that are caught up in you know critical theory social justice who you know, absolutely feel the scandal as it relates to certain classes of people, right? Mm-hmm. So, like the fact that God would save a white devil, you know, like us, <laughs> that would be you know, scandalous, like for some. But then, like the issue is that's everyone, right? That's ev- that's not just like you know abusers and you know white people and everything, you know, like in our society, mm-hmm. like old white men, right? Uh, like it's everyone. Like we're all that bad. So, like if you understand that, like the point is that you should be shocked that God would save anyone. Right. Yeah. And and it seems like it all kind of stems from this common sort of, uh, presupposition that essentially, um, 
all people are basically good in right. a certain sense, right? So instead of instead of thinking of everyone as the criminal uh, sent, who's rightfully sentenced to death, we kind of all think of ourselves as uh, the like you said the you know the critical theory sort of uh, mentality that that uh, everyone is essentially a victim in some way. I guess maybe not the white people. Maybe they're not victims, but everyone else they can be victims. And and God's a big meanie, you know, according Basically. to Calvin, because yep. yep. <laughs> he won't save them all, right? Right. Um, right. Okay. So kind of going along a similar question. We're all here. worse than white people, man. Yeah, we're all <laughs> we're all worse than white people. <laughs> um, uh, a similar sort of question here, but I think slightly different. Um, going along with that idea, uh, the objection that some would bring up, you know, about hey, doesn't God, you know, love all people? Isn't he? Shouldn't if he really did love all people, why wouldn't he save them all? Why would he condemn some people to hell with no possible way of? Uh, or no possible path to redemption. Um, isn't it cruel to even make someone like that? If you know that you are going to make them, they have an eternal soul um, <clears throat> and they have no way to save themselves. And uh, Jesus doesn't atone for them. So their only option is, is uh, eternal death and hell. So isn't that sort of isn't that like an unloving thing to do? Like why even make that person at that point? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think you're at that point you're back to the um, the caricature of the position to where essentially what you're saying is that God is making a puppet and then he's forcing that puppet, you know, against his will to commit evil acts and then, you know, so it's just like, hey, you know, um, bad puppet, you know. Uh, don't do this. So he tells them to not do something and then he, you know, forces them to do it. And then you right. know, the answer then is bad puppet, you know, smash, you know, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> like, uh, and that, like the point though there is that that's not, like God doesn't take credit for evil in that kind of way. So, uh, you know, the Bible says that no one who is being tempted, let, let no one say I am being tempted by God for God can't be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. So, like, the issue is that God makes individuals. He gives them a gift of life. They squander that in rebellion against his purposes. And ultimately, yes, that's part of his plan in some sense. But, like, we're not talking about the doctrine of equal ultimacy, essentially. That God, you know, his hardening is not the same as his, um, you know, vivification in an individual's life. Meaning he doesn't, uh, it's asymmetrical. Like he gives people over to their own depravity and he, you know, uh, re removes this restraining grace and allows them to pursue the sin that's on, in their own heart. But he doesn't take credit for putting that wickedness in their own hearts and he doesn't take credit for, you know, being a source of temptation for them. So he gives us the gift of life and then we spurn his, his blessings in, uh, due to our sinfulness and our rebellion and he's not. You know, he, what he's not doing is taking credit for putting those wicked, evil desires in us in order to punish us. Uh, but then ultimately, yes, I mean, certain aspects of his character, like that he's holy and that he's just, are being revealed in the process of, you know, sure, making individuals that are, are prepared for destruction in that way. So, uh, but I, I think for, for that kind of objection to stand, you do have to have uh, some kind of... Um, 
it is a distortion of the position essentially is the point to where it views God as uh, you know being in control in the same way uh, in two very different kind of scenarios so yeah so basically it's just saying hey so God's not like the in this sense the master puppeteer you know forcing people to, to sin against their will and then, yeah. and then punishing them for the sin that he forced them to commit. That's not what's happening. What's actually happening is he's just leaving people to their own devices, right? right, and, right. and then they're they're choosing sin. I mean, we all choose sin. Um, yeah. So then, with, like the without issue, God's inter, uh, uh, interference in some way, we all choose sin. So the issue then is like, well, why even make them right? So why right. even make them? Why is that part of his plan? Like, mm-hmm. why make them at all? You know, wouldn't it be more merciful and wouldn't it be more compassionate for him just to refuse to create, you know, individuals that will reject his purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, like the issue then is that you know, if if the only aspect of God's character uh, is his love and his mercy, then that kind of thing might make a certain amount of sense. But then the problem is that he also is just and you know, has a holy hatred towards sin, and there's more to his character than that. You know, I'm reminded of a uh, interview I had at some point with an aspiring worship leader who wanted to be um, a worship leader at a church I was involved at. In and you know, at some point, I in talking to this guy, I'm getting the impression that he's pretty soft on like issues of sin, and so I, you know, I asked him, you know, what his understanding of the gospel was, and I just the way he spoke, I, you know, I, I got the impression that he really didn't believe in like a literal hell. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so as I was talking to him about it, I essentially, you know, asked him, you know, do you believe in like that in like a liter like hell is literal fire where, you know, a sinner is tormented day and night forever and ever with no hope of escape. And, you know, he's like, no, you know, that's beyond my pay grade. And in order to try to justify that kind of thing, um, you know, he basically, you know, Talk, you know, he he basically just couldn't understand how I would think that there's something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But then his way of of trying to persuade, like, wake me up, you know, was essentially to say, you know, to ask me a question, you know, like if you could describe God in one word, what would it be, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, holy, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, he asked you that. He asked me to say, holy, you know. And it's like, that wasn't the, and he's like, no, it's love, it's love. You know, it's like, well, nowhere in the Bible does it say God's love, 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 right? Like, mm-hmm. but it does say he's holy, holy, holy. You know, every time the angels see him and they fall on their face, they say holy, holy, holy three times. So it seems to me that there's more to his character than simply his love. And, but then I think we, we do, we should understand this. I mean, if someone were to, you know, rape and murder your wife, you know, and cut her head off and wear it as a hat, you know, that kind of thing. Like, what do you think? Like, what should happen to that? It should I mean, isn't there, would it be, like, if that individual went to a judge and said, hey, I'm sorry, you know, just had a bad night. And <laughs> it's an off night for me. <laughs> yeah, it's just an off night for me. You know, I, she, she wasn't doing what I wanted her to do kind of thing, right? It's like, well, and that, if that judge were to just say, hey, you know, yeah, I get it, man. We all have bad days. Who hasn't been there, right? Yeah, who been there? <laughs> I mean, at that point, I mean, it's just like that's like no, that's not a morally sufficient response to what just happened. 
like this person doesn't exist anymore because you right. had, you had a bad night, you know. That's not justice. That's not justice. And so like that like that's the issue. The issue is that God's more complicated than just that. You know, he's uh, there's more to his character than simply just uh, you know, a love that's devoid of justice, like an empty kind of love in that way. Mm-hmm. So when you when you understand who God actually is, then um, there's more you know, more to him than all, all that. Okay, Talk, uh, continuing on that topic of justice, I mentioned earlier um, that really it should be kind of confusing in a certain sense that uh, if if you're going to accept the premise that uh, God predestines certain people to believe and then he pre- he predestines others uh, to not believe in the gospel uh, and in predestining them to not believe, essentially what he's doing is he's leaving those people to their own devices. So we all choose sin, but then he does uh, intervene in the hearts of some, regenerates them to new life, and then they, uh, gives them faith uh, to uh, call on the name of the Lord, right? And he promises he won't put them to shame. But then the other people, he's not doing that. Uh, he's not atoning for their sins. He's not offering them a chance at redemption. Um, so so if you accept all that and, and you can understand where that's coming from in the Bible, then there is still the question of, uh, well, okay, I understand everyone is evil, Everyone's wicked. Everyone chooses sin. And I know God is a just God. I know he's, uh, the Bible says over and over again that he's going to punish the wicked, uh, the, you know, that they're going to, um, you know, burn forever uh, under, the, under the wrath of God uh, for all eternity. They're going to be gnashing their teeth. Um, so, so if God is a just God, how is he even saving some of those people? Yeah, I mean, um, so like the issue is um, that's where the cross comes in. So if, mm-hmm. you, you know, if you have an idea of the cross, the cross is where love and justice meet, essentially. So, you know, if you change the metaphor, for example, like, in, um, you know, if I owed, uh, if I got into debt, I owed like you a million dollars and I couldn't pay I mean, I'm fine with that scenario. Besides the can't pay part, I well, just imagine I <laughs> I I stole a million dollars from you, and like you know, you'd saved up forever. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be pretty upset. <laughs> and I did, yeah. But then you know, I'm standing in the courtroom, and you know, I need to. There needs to be some kind of punishment for it. But yeah, if Jesus came in and says, "Hey, Harrison, here's your million dollar check. I got it right." Mm-hmm. Then you know. That would be an act of mercy. That would be an act of grace. But then, like, the scales would be balanced. You know, everything would be right in the world. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, it would, it would, it wouldn't be unjust for that, like, uh, for me to be released of my obligation because my obligation at that point is paid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if Jesus, like, so the idea of Jesus dying on the cross, he's he's truly the innocent man who is bearing the, you know, the cost. So the Bible says the soul who sins must die, and Jesus is the spotless, blameless Lamb of God, and his life is of infinite worth. Uh, and, you know, if he wants to step in and take my place and take the punishment I deserve, then there's nothing unjust about that. That's just him deciding to, 
show mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So basically Jesus is the one taking that punishment, right? Right. Okay. Um, yeah, which he's perfectly within his rights to do, you know, so if he wanted to cancel my debt, he can cancel it. Like, and mm -hmm. he's, you know, I, no one can like the, the issue though, is no one can demand that he cancel their debt. And right. no one can, I mean, no one can even demand that you provide like a way, like the, the issue is if I owe, if I owe the million dollars or the hundred billion dollars or whatever it is, you know, if I owe that, like I, I, I can't even demand like an ability to make it up, you know, it's just beyond me right. at that point. So like the, the, it is what it is, right. You know, so if I were to kill someone and can't bring back their life it's done and there's no way to take it back uh so justice is an eye for an eye two for tooth life for life i don't deserve anyone to die for me i don't deserve anyone to take my place i don't deserve that and i can't mm -hmm. demand that and i can't even demand like a path of like of like to get myself out of like the problem essentially right like yeah meaning like that person's dead and they're gone and you know i, I can't bring them back to their loved ones there's no repayment here and there's no right. way to make it up right right and you couldn't even, even if there was you couldn't necessarily you couldn't demand that that process be put in place for you right right okay so god's still just because he sent his son to die instead for those that he's predestined right right um so okay we've covered all that and um, basically so far, you know, we've talked about this issue of justice. We've talked about this issue of fairness um, and, and how that relates to basically just how you view man or humanity and the situation that we've put ourselves in because of our sin. Right. And so, so all of that, you know, I, you know, I might be a little biased here, but all of that makes perfect sense to me after reading through the Bible. I, I told you last week that when I read through the Bible cover to cover, uh, it even happened this week, actually. Um, you know, you just run into all of these, all of these random verses that you see, and then you think to yourself, "How else do I explain this verse beyond, you know, the doctrine of of uh, Calvinism? Basically, this idea that God is predestining people, that He is that He is uh, doing all of the work in salvation, in the process of salvation, right?" Um, so, uh, having said all that, I know there are a lot of people who would still object to all this, uh, everything that we're saying. Uh, and I, I'm sure if there are some people who don't believe in Calvinism and are, are still, you know, have the stomach to listen to us at this point, they might be just totally ripping their hair out, especially when we say, um, when we talk about the fact that Jesus doesn't actually atone for everyone. Uh, he doesn't atone for every single person uh, who's ever existed. He doesn't atone for their sin. Uh, and and typically when I talk to those type of people personally, one of the most common responses I get is this idea that they basically are just like, well, I, I don't, I can't worship that God. You know, I can't, I can't in good conscience uh, worship the God who's basically picking and choosing who he wants to believe. So, so what, what would your response be to that person? Say you're having that conversation with an individual about this and they respond that way. What would you say to them? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, they probably speak truer than they know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't worship that God. Meaning, they're saying I don't want to worship God now that well, I know I mean, the way that He actually works. Is that what you mean? I mean, if that's the objection, I mean, the the issue is like, is that who God actually is, and like that for that kind of like the the issue is if that is who He is, then and they're just you know speaking the truth like they they don't want the god of the bible at that point and they don't want to worship the god of the bible and mm-hmm. you know i mean that could happen for a variety of reasons but i mean that you know it's certainly um like when you come to the bible um the the issue is what is the passage saying fundamentally right so i mean if if we like part part of salvation means that we confess that jesus is lord and that means that he calls the shots and that means that whatever the Bible says, there has to be some sort of fundamental submission to the actual God of the Bible. And so I don't, you know, I'm perfectly, and I've been on both sides of this discussion at different points in my life. But then like the issue is like, it, yeah, I mean, maybe it's possible that I've, my first position on this was right. And my second position on this is wrong. I don't think that's likely, but I mean, surely it's, surely it's possible. But then, you know, I, like the only way to move forward in this kind of discussion is to determine not like like to determine what the Bible is actually saying and not what you want it to say ahead of time and put limits on what it could be saying. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you're going to engage in this kind of discussion in good faith, you can't start out with like limits on what the Bible could be saying that go beyond the, your ability to worship God or not. Like, I mean, if it's like, I want to worship god whoever he happens to be and however he happens to reveal himself and if it's like the arminian god then okay you know like that's i can like i don't have any like um there's nothing in me that would ever even go there in my mind meaning like if that if the arminian god is the god of the bible then that's the one i'll serve i'll serve what god whoever he happens to be does that make sense yeah like, I don't think that the God of the Bible is the Arminian God, but, like, who am I to tell God how he's allowed to be, right? Mm-hmm. And that's essentially the problem of atheism at that point is that they have, like, uh, they, ref- like they refuse to submit to the Bible. And, they're you know, they come to the Bible, there's problematic elements of it. And so, you know, for me, like, there's not, there's a submission to the Bible and whatever it says, I'm going to believe. And even in the hard passages, like the passages that our culture doesn't like, you know, I I think we have a moral responsibility to respond in childlike faith too. So like that, like the issue is, like, I don't want there to be any, you know, anything, like, I don't want to put any limits on, you know, what what I will allow in my mind God to be. And if that's where you're at, that's a pretty uh, dangerous position to be at. Like, let's have an like a exegetical discussion about what these passages are saying to the best of our ability, trying to put all the pieces together in a way that makes sense of everything else. But like what's not, what's inappropriate is to determine from the outset, what are the limits? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You're basically, if you're the person who's coming into a conversation like that and saying, you know, hey, I'm totally close, I'm just totally closed off to the idea that God, uh, that it's even possible that the Bible could be saying God is predestining people and that salvation is not up to them in any way. 
if you're saying that, you're essentially putting God in a box, right? <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> It's a funny phrase, yeah, that we don't normally use. But I mean, you know, I don't. <laughs> there's a sense in which I don't want to tell God what He's allowed to reveal to me and be the arbiter of what He's allowed to say. So, you know, right. whatever He says goes. Like, and so I mean, like, it, there's obviously those verses in there, and we have to do something with them. And so the humble person is going to say, "Okay, like I, I at the very least, I have to be open to the possibility that." That's right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> or that, and, and so, I mean, if you're going to engage in this kind of discussion in good faith, then what you have to do is you have to come to the Bible and say, hey, whatever it says, I'll do. And, and you know, not hold, like, uh, like not just, you know, look at certain passages of the Bible and say, hey, I don't like that. And if that's what it is, I refuse to believe in that kind of God. It's like, well, you just don't like the Bible at that point. Or, you know, so I don't, I don't, I want to. Like there's plenty of like things in the Bible that are somewhat difficult to understand, but you know it's never a safe posture to go into the Bible and saying, "Okay, like you know, I'm totally you know unopened to the possibility that uh, it might mean what it's saying here." You know, so there's that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of person, yeah, they don't really want the biblical God at that point. Uh, because the biblical God is the God of the Bible who's revealed himself in the scripture. And so like, that's not a safe place to be. Now, what would be the difference between um, being, I guess, being um, open to the idea that God, so for example, open to the idea that God um, could predestine people um but not necessarily believing it. And what's the difference between that and just being like completely um, firm in your belief? So and that might not be the best way to ask it really um, because, you know, I assume like you, for example, you're probably pretty firm in what you believe about how God works out salvation. Am I correct? Yeah. 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 So you're pretty firm in it. Uh, would you say that you're closed off to the idea that um, that God could work in the way that Arminians would say that He works? Yeah, I'm. I'm not advocating like a endless kind of agnosticism over every theological discussion. So okay. as if the humble posture is to say that we don't know, and just throw your hands up. Yeah, and say it. You know, maybe it can't even be be known. That's not. What I'm trying to communicate, what I'm trying to communicate is like um, when I go to the Bible, there's a posture that says fundamentally, whatever this says, I'll do. And I'm not holding that captive to, you know, like there's this, like it's not held captive to what I want it to say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning like I work out what it says on the basis of exegesis and study uh, by comparing, yeah, passages with passages and everything else, and by the help of the Holy Spirit and all that, but there is a fundamental submission that says, "Hey, whatever this book says, I'll do." Okay, mm-hmm. so whatever this book says, I'll do. And there's been plenty of times in my life where I've came to passages that I don't have, like I don't understand, but then my impulse isn't just to say, you know, all right, I've come to a passage I don't understand. Well, like I don't put like certain um like it's not as if i'm coming to those passages and basically saying like well 
you know, I don't like what that says, and I refuse to believe in a God who would say something like that or something like that. Like that's not mm-hmm. like I don't like that's a foreign kind of thought. Okay, yeah, <laughs> to, to to even think that way. So I don't like you don't invent a God in your own mind and then basically hold the Bible captive to this God that you have invented in your mind. What you do is you say, I'm going to figure out who God is by his word in that way. So I'm not advocating like an endless agnosticism or kind of uh, open-mindedness about every area of doctrine. Certainly the more doctrine that you come to, the more that you start to land those discussions and come to a certain position. But it's a very different thing to start out by saying, you know, I, I am closed off to certain truths because like that isn't the kind of God that I could ever stomach, Right. But it might be right. that like <laughs> the biblical God cuts against the grain of our natural understanding at certain points uh, in a variety of points. And so how do you ever conform, you know, um, like, you know the Bible says the carnal mind is at enmity with God. It cannot understand the things of God. It's hostile to the things of God. So how do you get to start out there with saying there might be plenty of things in here that I may inherently be hostile to that I need to face right right (laughs) right so what i'm what i'm advocating for is just an approach that says whatever this says i'll do and then you go to the scripture and you let it speak and you and you let it speak like the way it speaks right right and then that you that builds your theology at that point so you start that way but what you don't do is you so you don't just um uh what i'm not talking about is just like an endless like you know, any dumb idea that someone comes up with at a certain point is just <laughs> equally worthy of consideration. Like, where's the textual basis for it? Does that, is right. that clear? Yeah, yeah. Basically, um, I guess in, in an attempt to sort of summarize it in a way, basically, if you're trying to understand a certain um, you know aspect of God's character or his nature or, you know, um, the the relationship that we have, with God or whatever it is when you're studying, you never want to approach that scripture with a, with a um, sort of like restrictions that you've already made in your mind that are based off of your own preference or, or whatever. The only time that you ever really want to um, restrict a certain passage, meaning like, okay, you read, you read something, you're not entirely sure what it means yet. You're thinking through it and you say, Okay, well, it can't mean this. Uh, the only time that that's really a good thing to do is is if you have other scripture that you're comparing it to, that um, you know, uh, for for whatever you're studying to be true, it'd have to contradict another part of scripture. That's when you would want to say, okay, well, well, it can't mean this. Then is that, is that kind of yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, I think I could give you an example that would okay. maybe. Um, so, I mean, obviously, you you compare scripture with scripture, and God's not right. going to contradict Himself, and you know. So, I don't um, like. So, you, you do start with what you know, and then you build on that. Uh, but then, I mean, there are times where like something new you find might uh, contradict what you know, and then that may cause you to go revisit what you knew, right? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. think, did I actually know that? <laughs> Or, you know, is there a way to harmonize these that's a little better that might mean that what I thought I knew needs to change a little bit in order to, you know, fit better with what this is saying. And so there's, but then you do that work. But I mean, I think in the sermon today, I brought up a passage like if, uh, you know, an individual has a stubborn and rebellious son 
um, you know, you take him to the city gates and you, you this in Deuteronomy and you stone him, you know, cause he's a glutton and a drunkard. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, like my, I would never go to a passage like that and say, Oh man, well, I could never serve a God like that. Right. Right. <laughs> it's just like, Hey, that may, like you, you might have to figure out, you know, and for a lot of people, they probably haven't put a lot of thought into that kind of thing. I mean, the atheists excel at doing that kind of thing. They're basically saying, I could never serve a God like that. But like, we can't have the same kind of response. Our, our obligation is to figure out, well, what did that mean? And why is he saying that? And why does that make mm-hmm. sense? And what are we talking about? And, you know, is that a moral command that's binding on us today? And, like, there should be some openness to, like, whatever the right answer is, I'll submit. Right? Mm-hmm. And not like a, like a posture that's fundamentally just... I, I don't like it. I can never serve a God like that. It's like, well, all right, you probably don't serve him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. So like the responsibility then is to figure out what it says and to try to apply it. And it might be that like it might like the application isn't like just uh, as straightforward as you think. And, you, you, you know, it might be that you need to wrestle with it and try to figure out, well, how do you apply that today and, and all that. But like there should be a submission to whatever that means and whatever that says about God, I'm okay with, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like whatever it says about him, I'm okay with. Like, and so now it's my job to figure out what is it saying? And if that means my understanding needs to change, then it may mean that my understanding needs to change, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's plenty of like, like, so when individuals, like, like unbelievers do this, I mean, they look at these problem passages and the, you know, problem passages in the Bible and then they, uh, basically say I could never serve a God like that and it's just like well what you've done is you've elevated your own sense of morality above like the Bible at that point and that's fundamentally evidence of why you're condemned uh, so like the issue is that God is just and God is holy and his ways are right and his you know uh, word is true and so whatever he says goes and so whatever he says in this discussion related to Arminianism predestination let's let it be what it is and and you know have a like um like there has like you, you know you're not going to get anywhere in the discussion if you just basically just respond emotionally to passages you don't like and just dismiss them out of hand okay mm-hmm. so you, you need to do the work of figuring out what they mean and whatever it is they mean you should be okay with okay um the last thing I really want to talk to you about is um, Romans nine. I mean, basically, I think I think it's pretty much like a um, a requirement that if you have a conversation about Arminianism and Calvinism, you have to talk about Romans nine. At least if you're the Calvinist, if you're the Arminianist, uh, Arminianist, Arminian, then I think you're kind of like let's avoid Romans nine if at all possible. Right. Um, in my experience, Romans nine is kind of like the, it's like the, in Harry Potter, it's like the restricted section of the library or something where you try to you try to get all the young the younger students to stay away from that section or maybe the Forbidden Forest or something. You just you don't go there, right? Sure. If, if you if you believe in Arminianism and what I thought it would be helpful to do, Tim, is just for me to. Really, honestly, I really just want to read through this entire chapter because I think there's, I think there's a lot here, and I'm not, I'm not asking you to, you know, 
exegete the whole thing for us, but I want people to hear this chapter, um, and then, and then I I want to I want to ask you just a few questions about it and kind of kind of get your thoughts on it. So this is Romans nine um, from start to finish. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me and the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the, is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants shall be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but there was also Rebekah, who, uh, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For through the twins were, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her that the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? There is no justice with God, is there? Far from it. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will show compassion to whomever I show compassion. So then it does not depend on the person who wants, who wants it, nor the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? On the contrary, who are you, you foolish person, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, namely us, whom he also called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among Gentiles. As he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it, sh and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel may be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved.
for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, if the Lord of armies had not left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and would have been like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, but the righteousness that is by faith? However, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though they could by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. So there's obviously a lot going on in this chapter in Romans 9. Can you just, Tim, I guess just start by um, just kind of giving, you know, as, as brief of a summary as you can of that chapter and, and what Paul is uh, saying here in general. Yeah, I mean, he just meets, this is one of those uh, passages, I think probably the most uh, well-known of passages that are talking about this subject. I think Ephesians 1 might be a close second, but, you know, it is a passage that is essentially talking about God's sovereign choice. Um, so you know, Paul is looking at the Israelites and basically saying he would, wish himself to be cut off for the sake of uh, Christ instead of them. But then, you know, you look at them, they're giving all, they've been given all these promises from God. They've been given, you know, all these blessings, the giving of the law, you know, the covenants and everything else. And the problem is that they um, have turned away from Christ. They ultimately put Christ uh, to death on a cross. And so, you know, he's wrestling with that and and then, you know, the conclusion, though, is, well, did that mean, you know, if the, if the you know, the Israelites were, the, you know, the covenant people and they didn't choose to follow Christ, does that mean that the word of God essentially has failed? That's the point he's making in verse, uh, uh, verse 6. But then, you know, his conclusion is that, you know, there, this doesn't mean the word of God has failed just because Israel en masse is not serving the Messiah you know, there's um, throughout the Old Testament, as you read through the Old Testament, there's examples of, you know, the bloodline, so to speak, uh, individuals who follow God from, you know, the chosen bloodline and individuals who don't, right? So essentially what he does is he he gives the, the example of um, Abraham. You know, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and, uh, you know, the promises didn't come through Ishmael. The promises came through Isaac, and then they came through Isaac on the basis of God's sovereign uh, choice, essentially, right? Uh, and then the same thing is um, true as it relates to Jacob and Esau. So Jacob and Esau are both coming from the offspring of Isaac and Rebekah. But then of the two, you know, he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have, have I hated. And so the promises then came through um, Jacob, who became known as Israel, not uh, Esau, who uh, from from whom the Edomites came, and so like then the the so like the issue is that God has always had a sovereign choice in how um, how these promises are going to come to pass, and so He you know gives those examples, and then then deals with like the objections that people might have at that point, and so and. The objections they may have are the same objections that you brought up at, at a variety of points. So what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Verse 14, 
And then the answer is for by no means, right? So God, as the potter, has the right to do, show mercy to whom he has, show mercy, compassion to, to whom he's going to show compassion. So mercy is not owed, it's not deserved, it's not earned, it's not merited. Uh, and uh, so these, these promises are going to come through God's sovereign choice. And at that point, he chose Jacob. He didn't chose Jacob on the basis of any good in Jacob. Jacob was a swindler and a scoundrel, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And like he, you know, continues to show some other examples uh, as it relates to Pharaoh. You know, God raised up Pharaoh for the very purpose of um, demonstrating his wrath. But I mean, there's there's a whole lot more that can be said at that point. But this is just a, one of those passages that are dealing with the subject in a pretty direct way. Right. Yeah. It seems like in my mind, it probably the most comprehensive single passage talking about this subject. Right. Yep. Um, so I guess, I guess the, in my experience, so before I even knew just to give you a little backstory on, on, um, how I came to be where I am today, where I, you know, obviously I believe the same thing that, that God predestines, uh, that he's working in salvation. Um, and it's not up to us in any way to obtain it or maintain it. Um, I, uh, I had no idea that if I'm being honest, I had no idea that this was even like a conversation that people had. I just assumed that everyone had their own, you know, free choice to make, um, and when I went uh, to Bible college, I mean, it was just like, it seemed like every day my peers were having these heated debates uh, over Calvinism and Arminianism. And I didn't even know what they were. I, I remember writing down both words after I heard someone say them, and then I had to go back later and look them up because I didn't know what they meant. What and uh, yeah, I was just like, I don't like, I was just sitting there quiet, hoping that they didn't ask me what I thought because I had no idea what they were talking about. Um, so I wrote it down and I went back and, and looked it up later. And, and um, you know, that, that was sort of what got me on the path of, you know, it's kind of a similar, uh, I, I kind of had a similar disposition um, as to what you described in terms of like how we should approach scripture I was basically just kind of like, hey, I'm, I've never really heard of, of Calvinism before, but then I do know that, that the Bible uses some of these terms that, that are so often used, like predestination. I mean, that's just like a literal word in the Bible. Sure. So, so I need to at least, I need to figure, I need to like figure it out, you know, for myself. And so I studied more and more and, and eventually, you know, I came across Romans 9, I think pretty early on. And when I when I read Romans nine, I mean that was kind of it was really hard to come up with any other, um, you know, interpretation interpretation of what Romans nine is talking about besides predestination and God being able to uh, work in the hearts of men in in a way that uh, is distinct from Arminianism. And so when I read Romans nine, that was kind of that was kind of the the you know domino the the first domino to fall basically that that um uh that convinced me that calvinism is is the correct doctrine um now with all that being said 
you know, I, that means that I spent years and years and years, um, never, you know, never having even been taught anything on Romans nine. Now, part of that's my own fault. I should have been studying the Bible much more diligently than I actually was. And, and if I was, if I even just did like a, you know, read through the Bible in a year plan or something, I probably would have come across that chapter and been like, hang on, this seems pretty strange, you know, um, for someone who has no idea that there's even a debate going on about this, this seems weird, this chapter. I don't know what to do with this chapter. So part of it's my own fault. But then on the other hand, you know, I mean, I never heard anyone say anything about this chapter. And even now, as I talk to people who would fall in the Arminian camp or, or maybe they're, you know, like the soft Arminian or something where they think that, that God has certainly has, um, uh, he is working in some way, but then we still have a responsibility to choose uh, to accept or reject Christ's offer. Um, it seems like they basically try to avoid Romans nine. Is that is that your experience? Uh, your experience as well, Tim? Yeah, I. I mean, my own experience is that this is just one of those passages that you just you know it that. <laughs> the primary way that you interpret it is basically just say, Hey, it doesn't mean what those Calvinists say it means. So move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, just avoid it. It's the forbidden forest. Uh, man. Don't just, go in it doesn't there. mean whatever, you know, it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. So it means something else. We know it doesn't mean. And so it's typically like, we know it doesn't mean what it sounds like it's saying because, you know, God's a God of love and you know, God, John three sixteen. Uh-huh. So then move on. But then the problem is that that really never satisfied me. You know, right. personally, because I want yeah that white knuckle grip on John three sixteen. It didn't. Well, it wasn't a like satisfactory a, explanation. Well, I, I will. You know, I'm fine. I want to believe John three sixteen, and I want to know what this is saying too. So, what is it saying? Right. Right. So, whatever it says, it's fine. So, what are we talking about? Right. But uh, you know, certainly that's you know my experience is is that you know for the vast majority of Armenians, like this is just you know one of those passages that they probably would prefer we're not there because they, they don't right. seem to have a vested interest in explaining what it means. Um, right. But then in, you know, a lot of debates that I've listened to on this subject, it, you know, it, I mean, James White had a debate on this with um, Leighton Flowers, for instance, and that's just one example. But then, yeah, I mean, it's funny like that the, the standard way of approaching it is basically just uh, instead of, walking through the passage explaining what it means and comparing it with the context that surrounds it what ends up happening is you just talk about you know other things and then you step into that and show why it can't mean what the calvinists say it means but then you don't really give a positive exegesis of what it's actually saying at that point it's just predominantly let's talk about other passages and then let's talk about why Mm -hmm. this can't be saying that and then the end but it's like well fine all right what does it mean though (laughs) okay right what is it saying? You know, tell me what it's saying and how, how do we make sense of it in order? And, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like if you, you know, reading through Romans 8, you know, and you get, you know, for those whom he foreknew, he, um, you, you basically, uh, for those whom he predestined, he called, and for those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And then, you know, you get over there to Romans 9 and you're talking about, um, Though though uh, they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told that the older will serve the younger. It seems like we're talking about God making a sovereign choice to elect certain individuals uh, and to, you know, to call them and to justify them and to glorify them, not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of God's own purpose in calling them. So it, it just, it, it all makes sense if we're talking about it in context. But then if you move out of that context, I really don't know what it's saying anymore. Right. Um, so is it fair to say that, you know, I w- is it fair to say that typically Arminians don't want to interact with Romans 9 if they don't have to, um, basically because they really don't have... There's not a... I mean, there's not a... There's not a... It's very difficult. Like, there's nothing... There's no positive exegesis that you can give that's going to be persuasive at that point. So it's just hard mm-hmm. to deal with the details. I mean, that's always a sign that someone is, like in dangerous territory um, in general. So, I mean, as I've had conversations with people on plenty of like biblical issues that are somewhat um, controversial, um, it's always like, what's always like a red flag is when you have an individual who basically is just refusing to tell me what the passage means. And that's something that I've learned over the years that if you're not going to tell me what it means, I don't have anything like, I don't, like I'm not going to take you seriously. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to hear what it doesn't mean. What I don't want to hear is what it means, and I want it like that. I want you to explain it. I want you to explain the details. And if you can't do that, then you know I'm you're not a person I'm going to listen to. Like so, like you have to do more than like the Satan. I mean, obviously has a vested interest in like has God said right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Satan has a vested interest in telling us to ignore the Bible. So I don't want to be listen to people who are telling me to ignore it. I want to listen to people who are going to tell me what it means. And if you can't tell me what it means, then I don't have any interest in listening to you. But that's the way it is across the board. You know, that's the way it is Like with plenty of the controversial subjects we've even talked about on the podcast. The primary response that many people have is just to say, hey, I don't like that. Right. It's like, OK, right. <laughs> right? Well, I don't care. You know, huh. <laughs> yeah, great. You know, you don't like it. That's fine. You know, but I, I'm not going to take you seriously until you tell me what it means. Like, mm-hmm. and if you don't want to tell me what it means, then I'm sorry. Like, you know, you don't have any, um, like, uh, I've learned over the course of my life that individuals who can't tell me what the Bible means, I don't listen to. And so I don't care about your objections at that point unless you tell me what they, tell me what it means positively. Don't just tell me what you don't want it to mean. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's always a, like, it's always a dangerous place to be in when all you can do is just tell me what it doesn't mean. It's just like, well, what does it mean? Why is it there? You know, should we just cut it out? You know, what do we do? <laughs> right. Like, cause I'm not going to cut it out. So what does it mean? Right. Okay. So I know you just, <laughs> you just got done telling me that basically, you know, Arminians are only giving the, you know, the negative explanation. Are, have you ever heard any Armenian give a positive explanation? So they've they've not only said it doesn't it doesn't mean what Calvinists would say it means. Here's what it actually means. Have you I, ever heard yeah. that? I mean, by and large, that's not happening at I mean, at any popular level, you know, you can listen to any number of Calvinist Armenian debates, and you're not going to find a positive exegesis of the passage at all. Like that doesn't happen, and even in like debates that are designed to do that particular thing, it doesn't happen. But you know, they, if the best that I've, I mean, the best attempts that I've heard are, 
kind of like what I describe as dismissal kind of interpretations to where it's just like you just say, hey, it's not talking about individual election. It's talking about corporate election. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. the end, right? Mm-hmm. But then the problem is it's just like that kind of objection breaks down when you deal with the details. Does that make sense? Would it explain it? Well, I, said, I mean, you can't just kind of wave your hand over like a passage and say, okay, it's just talking about, it's not talking about individuals. It's talking about corporate. So therefore, like, but then like, how does that help anything? Right? Like, like, how does that help that like, okay, we're talking about Israel and now we're talking about corporate election and then God chose the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Like, so, you know, what, uh, you know, what individuals will do is they'll say, hey, you know, it's not talking about salvation and it's talking, so it is talking about God and making a sovereign choice but not for salvation, but uh, it's corporate, meaning like he's choosing groups. So he chose Israel for service. That's what they'll say, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So God chose Israel corporately as a group to serve him in particular, and he didn't choose other nations to serve him. So it's not talking about salvation, chosen for salvation. It's talking about chosen for service of groups and not individuals. So the problem is that, one, individuals make up groups, okay? <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and the passage is talking about individuals, obviously, right? So Jacob of I love, Esau of I hated. Right, so Pharaoh. Jacob is an individual, and even if he represents a group, he also represents an individual. And even if Esau represents a group, Esau is also an individual. So I think that choice matters if you're Jacob or Esau, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then if you're not a member of the Jacob group, doesn't that choice matter too? Okay. So like that doesn't help anything. It doesn't help, right? Like why does that help? Like you just, that's just a hand waving, you know, like uh, look at my magic trick. I've just distracted you for a second. And it's just like, how did that help anything? Okay. And now it's like, it's not talking about salvation. It's just talking about service. It's like, okay, well then like what, what you have to explain to me the objection at that point. Does that make sense? What do you mean? All right. So, you know, all right. So God just chose Israel for service and not, like, so he chose Jacob for service. He didn't choose Esau for service. Okay, he's just choosing groups to serve him and not other groups to serve him. Okay, and that's totally unrelated to salvation whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. It's talking about service. All right, all right, fair enough. Okay, I'm following I'm following you. All right, Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Well, by no means. Well, all right. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have, have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, all right, presumably what we're talking about then is God is saying that, like the objector at that point is saying, well, that's not very fair. Everyone should be able to serve God. Why is God only picking certain people to serve him, not for salvation, right? Mm-hmm. Well, God has mercy on whom he'll have mercy and compassion on whom he'll have compassion. And this choice doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy and then it says for this for the scripture says to pharaoh for this very purpose i've raised you up that i may show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth so then he has mercy on whom he has mercy and hardens whom he has mercy uh, uh, on whoever he wills and then you'll say to me why does he still find fault for who will resist his will uh but who are you a man to answer back to god will the well, what is molded say to the molder why have you made me like this has not the potter has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand? Like the point is, well, what, why are we talking about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy? I thought we were just talking about vessels for service, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And for this very purpose, he's raised Pharaoh up in order to harden him, in order to make him into a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. That seems like salvation that we're talking about. That went zero to 100 real quick. Yeah, it's like, I thought we were just talking about service here. You know, I thought we were just talking about corporate election, you know. I, but I think, you know, doesn't it matter that Pharaoh is a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction and Esau is a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction? I, doesn't that sound like eternal destination and doesn't that sound like salvation? But that's the whole point is that like you can't do that kind of thing. You can just say, oh, it's corporate, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what are we talking about vessels of wrath then prepared for destruction? It sounds like then all the vessels that are not chosen are the ones who are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So it seems like if you don't, you're not able to serve God, if that's what we're talking about, then you're a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. So, <laughs> I think we're talking about salvation here, you know? Right. Like, I think that's what we're talking about. Uh, so It sounds like we're having a conversation about morality. Right, right. Uh, so, like... Uh, you know, and then you go on, you know, as Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts did not let us up his offspring. We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. It seems like they were Sodom and Gomorrah are now like the ones who weren't able to serve God. <laughs> that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Uh, you know, and then, you know, you keep on going. What should we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith in Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were by works. It seems like we're talking about salvation the whole time. It seems like we're talking about individuals the whole time. And certainly, you know, those individuals in some sense, yeah, they represent groups, but then like they are individuals. And so like, it, it, the point is just to say that you can do that kind of, you know, it's just like a smoke and mirror kind of tactic where you're just, yeah, like for the individual who doesn't want to deal with the details, like you, you didn't tell me what that all meant, right? All you did was just wave your hand and said, oh, it just means something else. And then it doesn't mean that. And then, okay, well, how does that help, right? Right. So that's the best. I mean, the best I've seen is just what I just call just distracting tactics where you just, if you're going to deal with it at all, you basically just says, oh, it doesn't mean that. It means corporate. And it's like, all right what is the vessel of wrath then <laughs> you know <Yeah>. so <laughs> i'm confused <laughs> why is the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction uh, i thought we were talking about corporate service right so so basically long story short if you're an arminian and you want to stay an arminian don't go read romans 9 uh, well i mean <laughs> you, you got to do better than that you know and i don't know that i i've never seen anyone who you know all the debate i've watched debate after debate after debate on this and they don't they don't have a positive exegesis of it right but basically what they do is they just go to other passages and try to establish principles and then they come to romans 9 and say it can't possibly mean that and then the yeah. you know so that's what they do yeah but that's not very persuasive like i want and, i want a positive explanation what does it mean and you know if i'm going to take you seriously give me tell me what it means walk me through the passage tell me how it works you know yeah. And my experience having conversations with people about this individually, the people who are who are serious about scripture and who approach it the same way that you described earlier, meaning they want to exegete it and they just they want to understand what the Bible says. They don't want to inject um whatever their preference is into the scriptures. Whenever I read them Roman we might have like a um you know, I, normally what I do is 
maybe and maybe this isn't the most helpful thing, but normally what I do is I don't I don't bring up Romans nine at all, and we'll have a long conversation, and then after everything's kind of been said and done, I'll mention Romans nine and and just say, hey, let's just read this together real quick, you know, and and we'll just read through it just like we just like I did earlier, um, and the people who are serious about about scripture, I'm, I mean, pretty much every single time they're like, man. I really don't know what to do with this other than other than to understand it the way that, you know, you've described throughout our entire conversation so far. Um, that's been my experience uh, with anyone who's really trying to be honest um, with and just, you know, read the Bible and, and take the Bible at its word, which which in a, sen- a, a certain sense is really encouraging. You know, um, they either in the middle of that conversation will say, Hey, I really don't know what to, what, what to do with this other than, you know, to say that I think your understanding might be right and mine might be flawed or, you know, I'll just say, Hey, go home and read it some more and then come back and tell me what it means. And when we come back together, then that's when they tell me, all right, I think maybe my understanding might've been flawed and you might actually be right, you know? And so that's encouraging and I think I think that is a testament to just how helpful Romans nine really is. And so I think ultimately it's like, why are we avoiding this chap? You know, why are we avoiding this chapter? Why aren't we teaching this chapter? I think the only reason people don't want to read it is because, um, or teach it is because maybe they they uh, they don't want to deal with what's actually being taught there. Uh, they don't want to. They don't want to. Um, just like except the what it the implications that this chapter has ultimately for whatever reason so um, what well, doesn't i mean it obviously doesn't fit within that system so it does it definitely doesn't work with the love 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 thing yeah right? i mean so you just you just have to like the thing is though i mean i i think um if you if you do if you do want me to take your position seriously you do have to tell me what this passage means and right that is a sticking point and you know i i don't i mean i don't i don't know how to understand it other than just let it speak man you know so it just seems to be saying what it's saying and like the issue is then it's like oh well that may cause me to rethink a lot of things it's like okay you know so rethink them you know yeah yeah okay well that's all the questions i have for you tim is there anything you want to you want to say that maybe we didn't cover no man i yeah i think um Whenever you come, and I'll just repeat what I've said. I mean, I just think that whenever you come to, you know, passage, I think we all have to come to the Bible and come to the passages which, um, like, determine in your heart, make a resolution in your heart that you're just not going to have any problem passages, essentially. So whatever the Bible says, I'll do. And, you know, one of the things I've learned is that whenever there, I find in me, like, uh, part of me that recoils at a passage like that's like if if i've ever if i'm ever reading the bible and and there's this thought in me that's like man i don't like that Mm -hmm. like in those moments what i've learned to do is just pray okay (laughs) okay and just like say hey you know god soften my heart towards this right so like whatever you say is right and you know what you're trying to communicate and like if there's something in me that's rising up and wanting to fight this, like restore, you know, 
to me, a posture of humility that is open to your word in whatever it may say. And, you know, if, um, you know, if there's, like, if the plain sense is offending me, like, help me to be open to the idea that I need to change and not just, I need to go declare war on what the plain sense is saying. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean that it might be that I'm, I'm misunderstanding uh, to what it's saying at that point. But I need to be open to the possibility that like, the plain sense is right, you know, and as um, plenty of Bible um, interpreters have said, I mean, if the plain sense makes sense, to seek any other sense is nonsense. So, <laughs> so I mean, you need to put that on a t shirt. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think, you know, as you're reading through the Bible, like just deter- like we do have to determine to have no problem passages. And the atheists are great at this. Like they just look, use the Bible as a tool and they'll basically, you know, come to passages which to them sound immoral. You know, like Christopher Hitch- late Christopher Hitchens, like there's no more immoral passage in all the Bible than the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And so mm-hmm. like, you don't want to approach the Bible like an atheist. You want to approach the Bible like a Christian and basically say, whatever it says, I'll do. And then like, like the issue is like, if you, um, if you don't have a positive exegesis of a passage, then it's your job to shut up until you can figure <laughs> out how to get one. Okay. Uh-huh. Meaning like, if you can't tell me what it means, like, like, like I'm not at all, I can, no one should be interested in anyone telling us what the Bible doesn't mean. Like if like until you can get like a positive interpretation, you don't have anything to say. Like and you don't know that you're fundamentally not doing anything different than the devil. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> so give me a positive interpretation of what this means again. And I mean, and I might like um, like the issue. The, the issue there is that's just true across the board. Like just learn to not listen to people in general on any issue who can't tell you what it means. And that's what I'd advise people to do. Like, I want to know what it means. I don't want to know what it doesn't mean. So it might be that you tell me, hey, it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean this. Fine, fair enough, but tell me what it means. And if you if you stop short of that, then my ears are closed until you, op- you know, resolve it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we all need to do as it relates to every passage, but then these passages too. Yeah, I definitely think that's a, a very good, a very helpful, and a healthy approach to really just understanding the Bible in general, um, having a, a humble posture uh, as we study God's Word together. And so um, I think that's a good place to end this, you know, uh, land this conversation on. Um, so hopefully this has been helpful for you guys. Hopefully it's been encouraging and it's equipped you to be able to have these conversations uh, with the people in your own lives. So uh, we want to thank you Thank you guys for listening and supporting us, and we look forward to having you on the next one. This has been another episode of Bible Bashed. We hope you have been encouraged and blessed through our discussion. We thank you for all your support and ask you to continue to like and subscribe to Bible Bashed and share our podcast with your friends and on social media. Please reach out to us with your questions, pushback, and potential topics for us to discuss in future episodes at BibleBashedPodcast at gmail.com and consider supporting us through Patreon. If you would like to be Bible Bashed personally, then please know that we also offer free biblical counseling, which you can take advantage of by emailing us. Now, go boldly and obey the truth in the midst of a biblically illiterate world who will be perpetually offended by your every move. Thank you.